Welcome back to our, our beginning study through our Confession of Faith. And I appreciate your, your patience as we work through in these, these first couple of weeks, first few weeks, some, some introductory material. Before we just dive in uh, to chapter 1 and paragraph 1 and sentence 1 in our confession, although I'm, I am eager to get there, it, it is helpful for us to think about some necessary things, some, some preliminary matters before we attack or approach the confession of faith. Today, I want to give us some principles of, of interpretation. Some principles of interpretation. Uh, last, <clears throat> last week, we, we looked at the argument for confessions in general. I mean, why do we even have this? I mean, why are we spending time in a Sunday school class when we have an entire book of six, 66 books in our Bible Rather than, than studying, picking a book and studying through that in Sunday school, why, why is it that we're looking at a, a, an ancient theological document, uh, a confession of faith that's more than three centuries old? Why, why would we look at those things in that way and, and give ourselves, focus our attention on that? And, and the first answer is, and we'll see in the sermon today, because the Bible tells us to. Timothy, devote yourself to the teaching, not just the act of teaching, but the substance of it. So as a congregation, we ought to devote ourselves in, in, in like manner to these things and, and so that we can understand better our, our faith. But also, it, it helps us self-consciously to, be, to put, place ourselves in a stream of thought, a stream of doctrine with brothers and sisters in the faith that have gone before us. That, what the writer of Hebrews called that great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us. And also, as we saw last week, the, the, a confession of faith can be a great instrument, a great tool in cultivating unity among us. One of the things that a confession does, and I was introduced to this phrase several years ago by some of the men in our association. It was so helpful to me that the confession defines the minimum and the maximum of our fellowship together. What does that mean? Well, minimally... We have 32 chapters in our confession. This articulates those things that we believe are the main things in our Christian faith. The Bible contains teaching on a wide range of subjects, and all of them are equally inspired. All of them are equally given to us by God, but not all of them are of equal importance. The doctrine of, of justification, for example. Is, is, is imminently more important to us, more immediately important to us than, say, what we believe about a certain aspect of eschatology or the end times, for example. Not because one is less authoritative than the other, but because not every doctrine is equally important. So minimally, a confession helps us to determine what are those things that historically Christians have understood to be the most important aspects of our faith. And then on the other hand, maximally, it helps to us to have a, avoid what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. That we begin to think that because it's a contemporary issue, it must be the most important issue. And we are all uh, maybe prone to having our own theological hobby horses that we like to ride, and and we want to say this is this this is the test of orthodoxy. This is the test of whether you are a real, true, serious Christian or not. And the way I like to put it, this is, we have thirty-two chapters. If it doesn't make the top thirty-two, we don't need to divide over it. We don't need to fight amongst ourselves over it. Uh, we, we, so it, we, it helps set both a minimum of our fellowship together. If you're uh, a regular attender or a member of GFPC Conroe, the doctrines contained in our confession, minimally, you're going to be taught those things and, and urged to believe them. And, and maximally, those things that are, that are not contained in our confession, things that might be important, things that, that might be very important to you, you may have strong convictions or strong opinions on a matter. But if it's not something that's, that's settled in our confession, will we be willing to leave room for charity and liberty with one another in various interpretations and applications of some of those second or even third or fourth tier kind of doctrines? That makes sense? So today, the task I want to put before us today is to give us some interpretive tips or some interpretive principles before we... Uh, dive into the confession, and let's kind of stand back. You know, this, this 
uh, past Friday, uh, the kids helped me take out a couple of, we had some pretty big pine trees that, that needed to go out of our yard. And I spent a quite, quite a bit of time sizing it up and figuring out where do I want this tree to fall and how do I need to accomplish that. Before I ever got the chainsaw out, there was a plan, a plan that was months in the works. And in, in a similar way, we want to stand back and size this thing up and figure out how do we, how do we approach this confession of faith. Before we actually start the reading of it, before we get the chainsaw out, so to speak, can we, can we measure it? Can we, can we begin to sort of feel, feel out together, how should we approach this? So let me pray and ask for the Lord's help, and then we'll, we'll dive in with, I'm going to give you four uh, principles of interpretation. Father, we are grateful for your, your mercy towards us, the patience with which you endure and persevere with sinners. Uh, we thank you for the gospel of your Son, in whom we have life and liberty and assurance of eternal life. We, we thank you that your spirit has been at work in every age, leading us and guiding us into all truth. We thank you that we have an immovable, fixed, perfect standard of faith and practice in your word. And we thank you that we have helpful tools uh, to serve as, as a sort of roadmap, a guide to us as we navigate the waters of your word, many of which are deep and many of which are, are complex for us to navigate on our own. And it is helpful to have these tools. We're thankful for them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So principles of interpretation. Next week, my, my plan is to look at the, the top-level outline. Uh, Jim Renahan, and I mentioned this before, if you don't have it, I, I highly recommend to you to get it. It's, it's just been printed and published uh, it's published by Founders Press. It's, it's volume two in a series of commentaries, expositions that our brother is doing on the, the Baptist Confessions. The volume one was on the first London Confession of Faith, uh, the, on which, you know, in part, our confession was built. And then the second volume that's just been printed and released is called To the Judicious and Impartial Reader, volume two. It's an exposition of the second London Confession. And and into that, he gives an overview, a top-level outline. So we're going to spend some time looking at that. I had an opportunity to take his his seminary class, um, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, and work through that outline. And and so I'll be working through some of the original notes that I took during the class. It's very, very helpful. It was was, um, exceedingly helpful to me to understand that our, our confession is not just random component parts but have been woven together in a sort of tapestry. So that's what we'll look at next week. Before we, before we even get there, let's think about some principles of interpretation. Uh, again, before we get the saw out and begin to cut this thing, how do, we, how do we size it up? What are some things that are important to us? And first of all, the very first principles of, of interpretation is that it needs interpretation. Sometimes we approach a document, and we think we just... We just plop down in, in the very first line and, and just read it. And if we were reading a, a novel, a work of literature, that would be true. But even then, you have to come back after the fact and say, how do we interpret this? What was the author intending to say? But sometimes we, we, we are so accustomed now in our age to reading, what, 140 characters at a time or 280? Uh, we, we read snippets, and, and those don't require necessarily a lot of interpretation. We just assume that things can be read at their, at their face value and that, I, and that I am I am the means of interpretation. Because we, we approach, whether we realize it or not, we often approach a document with, what does this mean to me? Don't we do that? Whether it's a, a, a husband writing a note to his wife or an email that you receive at work, our first line of interpretation is, what does this mean to me? And when we approach a historical document, whether it's the scriptures, which is infallible and inerrant and, and wholly inspired, God-breathed, or whether we approach another document that's based upon the scriptures, like our confession of faith, that it's not infallible, it's not, in, it's not inerrant, and yet we believe it's very profitable and useful. But how do we approach that? We have to approach this as a document that must be interpreted. 
And, and if we lose sight of that and just say, well, I'll just, I'll just start at the beginning and just read it cover to cover and everything will be plain immediately to me, we're probably going to disappoint ourselves uh, before we get very far. Because there will be things that we, why would they say this? Why do they say it this way? Why do they choose these words instead of another set of words? So the first principle is that we have to understand the document as an historical document. What are some examples of other historical documents that you might think of that would have to be interpreted? Our U.S. Constitution. Um, Now, According to the Constitution, it's the job of the courts, right, and ultimately the Supreme Court to interpret the laws that are made by, by Congress. But, but, but the Constitution itself has to be interpreted, and it has to be interpreted in light of what? What are some of the key things? If you're going to teach a, or be part of an introduction to constitutional law class, what are some interpretive principles that you might think would apply? To the Constitution. Matthew? Yeah, the historical legal con- context. There was, there, was a, there was an English common law on which some of the principles in our, our Constitution were built. Some things were rejected and other things were firmly and clearly established. Great. What else? Any other ideas? Matthew again. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's going on geopolitically? that would have inspired these things. There's, a, there's another, um, it, I guess I should say an immediate cousin of our Constitution that must be understood in order to understand the Constitution, and that's the Declaration of Independence, isn't it? And even the Declaration of Independence has to be interpreted in light of a number of variables. Well, our, our purpose today is not to think about the U.S. Constitution, but I want you to think about things that you you really need to know, some background, in order to rightly understand an historical document. And that's a document that, that, I mean, ostensibly is well known in our culture. Now, we know better, but that's the idea, is that this is a document that's common to everyone. I mean, everyone should have covered this in in school. It it should be widely read and and understood, but sadly, it's, it's not. Well, how much more was something like a confession of faith that for most of us, you didn't grow up with that. It's not something that was familiar to you. I, I didn't, I mean, I was first introduced to our confession of faith somewhere about 2006. Uh, I had sat down with at a new church we were attending, and I sat down with a pastor at, at lunch, and, and I was asking, how do I know that this church isn't going to deviate, or make a hard left turn like several of my previous churches have done? And Pastor Vody handed me a copy of this 1689 something or other and said, go read this. This is, this is who we are. This is what we believe. And, and we're not going to deviate from this. I'd never heard of it before that. So we have, to understood, we have to understand the original context in which this was written. This is a historical document. And there, are, there were geopolitical factors involved. And there were major theological factors that were happening. This was written... Uh, based on it was it was largely based upon the Westminster Confession of Faith, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, kind of the historical background that was written in 1646. I mean, the middle of the 1600s. Well, this is just over a hundred years after Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Church of Wittenberg that sparked the Reformation. So, in, in terms of of um, eras in history, this was still fairly early in the Reformation. So to understand what was going on at that time, what were some of the things that our Baptist forefathers in particular were dealing with? Persecution. Desiring very much to be understood and embraced by the larger Reformed community, and yet at the same time, as a matter of conscience, to be able to spell out their particular, pun intended, their particular beliefs. So we want to look at what, what, are the, what are the original authors and editors of our confession? What do they say in other places? So to make the analogy again, if we were going to study the U.S. Constitution, one of the things that would be helpful is to read what some of the founding fathers wrote in other contexts, to read the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers, 
to read the writings of Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and George Washington and others and get an idea of what was in their mind. What were the things that were important to them? What were they thinking? What were they trying to guard against? What were they trying to promote in a similar way? We want to understand some of those, those kinds of things. So number one, the number one rule of interpretation is just that it has to be interpreted. Don't assume that just, just a simple reading of it without this historical background, without the, the political and historical uh, background, will give you all that you need to know about the confession. Second interpretation, interpretive principle is that we want to, and I'm going to use the language of, of Jim Renahan, we want to read the confession sideways. And what does he mean by that? What he means is that we need to be willing to read back and forth. That when we come to, uh, over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the first six chapters in our confession, those foundational principles. And there will be words and phrases that are not yet defined, that will be expanded upon and built upon later in the confession, but they're introduced here. And so, and then later on, you'll see things in the confession in, you know, in much later chapters, and you'll want to refer back to the early chapters to see how, this, how these pieces connected together. So you want to read it forwards and backwards. Uh, Emerson and I were just talking just right before Sunday school about just hermeneutics in general, particularly with the, with the scriptures. And, and do we read the Old Testament the way that the apostles read it, the way that Jesus read it, in terms of seeing Christ in those things and not, not setting the Old Testament aside and saying, well, it really doesn't have any bearing on the church of Jesus Christ. We say, no, no, no. Now that we see Christ, now we can go to the Old Testament and see everything much more clearly because the veil has now been lifted. And so in a similar way, we want to read the confession frontwards and backwards. Let me give you some examples of what what I mean. In chapter 1 in our confession, we deal with the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of the Word of God. Now, there is a, there's a, was a question, and it's come up throughout history, when if you were to sit down and write a confession of faith, start with a blank sheet of paper. What do you believe? And there really were kind of two different schools of thought on where to start. One is, well, you, you start with God, because nothing existed before God. God is the first cause, the first principle of everything. So you start with God. And that's, that's a reasonable conclusion, both logically, uh, in terms of, of everything flows from God. He is the creator of all things. But it's also, you know, ontologically it makes sense because nothing happened, nothing existed before God. And that God is, is the giver of, of all things. He is, the, he is the author and creator of life. He is the one who speaks from Genesis 1 1. It's, it, is, it is the voice of God that speaks and calls everything into being. But our confession begins with, not with the doctrine of God, but with the doctrine of the scriptures. Anybody want to hazard a guess why that is? Matthew. Yes. It's by the scriptures that we know certainly sufficient and infallibly who God is as he's revealed himself. I mean, Paul says in Romans 1 that the heavens themselves declare the glory of God and that, that his invisible attributes are plain even to unrighteous unregenerate men who suppress that truth and unrighteousness. So something can be known about God, but can we know from from observing creation? Can we know that God exists? Yeah. Uh, What else might we know from God, about God from creation? He's orderly. Absolutely. Very good. What else might we know about God? He's powerful. We also know he's God is good. He's benevolent. He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So there are number of things we can know, but can we know that God is triune? Can we know that God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit? Can we know that there is no salvation given among men except by the name of Jesus Christ? We can't know that from creation, so we have to have the Word of God to teach us those things. So we begin with the doctrine of the Scriptures, and then everything else the next 31 chapters in the confession are built upon the doctrine of the scripture. I'll give you another example. In chapter 2, we deal with the doctrine of God. And in that chapter, 
we confess that God exists in three persons. And then you'll find in chapter 7 of the Confession of Faith that we have an entire chapter entitled, I'm sorry, of chapter 8, of Christ the Mediator. Do you notice there's no chapter entitled of God the Father? There's no chapter entitled of God the Holy Spirit. And yet those are woven throughout the entire confession of faith. There was not a need for a separate chapter on God the Father or God the Spirit. It's woven throughout the entire confession. So we see the doctrine of God laid forth in chapter 2, and it's woven throughout the tapestry of the confession all the way through. Listen to, to Dr. Renahan on this. He says, it's imperative to note that the Second London Confession is a woven document. It must be read back and forth. What I mean by this is that in the early part of the confession of faith, one finds foundational doctrines that prepare the way for things that will be discussed in detail later. Sometimes, students approach the 32 chapters of the confession as if they were individual segments of doctrine without relationship to each other, when actually... Its theology is very tightly woven together. Readers ought always to ask the question, what does this anticipate? Or, what does this fulfill? Back and forth. Back and forth. Sometimes the response will be found close together. Sometimes they will be far apart. And one of the the examples that he gives at this point, if you have a copy of your confession, turn me to to chapter 4 on creation. In paragraph 2 of this chapter on creation, we read this. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls. We assert there's, there's an immortal soul. Now, what does that mean? There's no definition given here. There are no implications discussed. And it isn't until chapter 31, if you want to turn all the way over there, it's not until chapter 31 that that becomes, that is expanded upon. In paragraph 1 of chapter 31, this is a chapter called, Of the State of Man After Death and of the Resurrection of the Dead. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into paradise where they are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledgeth none. So the term is introduced to us there in chapter 4, immortal soul. But number one, what does that mean? And what are the implications of that? Well, it means that that soul is not going to be annihilated. That soul is not going to disappear. That soul is not going to die. It's going to live forever. What are the implications of that? Well, for the righteous, it means that soul will be united one day to a body. But even until then, that soul is not going to sleep. It's not going to be in some sort of of, uh, cryogenic stasis or some sort of spiritual stasis in which it has no consciousness. That soul will immediately be in the presence of Christ, waiting on the redemption even of the body that is then separated from that soul. The other implication, though, is for the wicked. They're not going to be annihilated. They're not just going to, it's not as if when they die, the lights just go off and they cease to exist. No, that, that soul also will one day be united to a body, be cast into utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. And there are no other places. There are two and only two places. So what, 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 what things does that rule out then? What, what are some of the errors that you've heard that could be ruled out just in this understanding. Matthew? 
purgatory. There's no third place. It's either in paradise or waiting for destruction. So purgatory. It also rules out the, the doctrine of maybe annihilationism, the idea that, it just, that, it, that just nothing happens. You die and it's just, it's just the end. Everything's over. What rules that out as well? So we see something that, that's positioned for us or presented to us in, in chapter 4. It's all the way in chapter 31 where we can, we can see what does this mean and what are the implications of that. Does that make sense? There, things are built upon one another. So we read forwards to backwards. In this case, we read from very early in the confession to all the way to the very end of the confession. Other times, it's, as, as Dr. Rinhead said, sometimes they're close together. I'll give you another, another example. Go back to the early stages of our confession in chapter 5, the doctrine of providence. The doctrine of providence. Uh, we begin, paragraph 1 asserts that God is the good creator of all things and that he governs all things. Paragraph 2 says that in relation to his foreknowledge, that God is the first cause of all things. And so nothing happens without by chance or without his providence, and that the same providence causes all things to come out, even according to the, the, the nature of second causes, meaning the things that we do, either righteous things or wicked things. God, pardon me, God uses all of those things to work out his decree. Then look at paragraph three. God in his ordinary providence makes use of means yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his good pleasure. Ordinarily, God governs his creation by use of means. Well, this is going to be very important in the sermon today. God makes use of means throughout his creation, including in his church, including the way in which ordinarily he calls men and women and boys and girls to himself. He uses means. God could just spontaneously download the gospel to you. He's certainly capable of that, but ordinarily, that's not what he does. The confession says here, and it's three phrases that I think are interesting, that God is free to work without, above, and against. And the footnotes here, and you'll see if, if you have a copy that has footnotes, the phrase work without, there's a reference there to Hosea. And there... God asserts that it was not by a sword or by an army that he delivered his people, but immediately by God's own hand. Now, you can read the Old Testament, and many times God used a means. He, he would send his people up and fight against a city, and they would take the city. But God also says, sometimes I don't even do that. I just give it to you. That your enemy just falls down and dies. There is no means. God works directly, immediately. It also says he, he is free to work above those means. And the footnote there is in Romans chapter 4, when, when Paul is talking about Sarah and Abraham waiting on a promised seed, and that God worked above the ordinary means. Now, this is not a biology class, but you know the ordinary means of producing a child. Well, God didn't work contrary to those means, but Sarah was 90. Ordinarily, women don't have children at 90 years of age with husbands who are 100. So God worked above. Now, God didn't, this wasn't an immaculate conception. God didn't just, one day Sarah and Abraham woke up and, well, there's Isaac sleeping in the bed next to them. God could have done any of those things, but he didn't. He worked through the ordinary means of a woman growing a child in her womb and giving birth nine months later. But it was above, you see what I mean, the above those ordinary means. This was an extraordinary case. Well, then the last footnote, and he's also free to work against these means at his good pleasure. The footnote there, the reference is Daniel chapter 3. Well, in Daniel chapter 3, the three friends of Daniel are thrown into a fiery furnace. What happens to them in the fiery furnace? Nothing. Even their garments didn't even smell of smoke. Now, what ordinarily happens when a furnace is heated to seven times its normal heat and a man is thrown into it? They perish. In fact, the guards who threw them in died, didn't they? God worked against those means. Because ordinarily, fire burns. 
And in this case, God worked against that. In other cases, the axe head floated. Jesus walked on water. Wine became, or water became wine. So see, God is free to work without those means, above those means, or against those ordinary means. But that doesn't change the fact that these are ordinary. Should we expect ordinarily that 90-year-old women will bear children? We shouldn't expect that. Should we expect ordinarily that men who are in the fire will not be consumed by it? No, we shouldn't expect that. So the doctrine of providence anticipates things that will follow. When we get to the doctrine of justification, how ordinarily does someone come to be justified? According to the scriptures, what is the ordinary means by which someone comes to faith? By hearing the word of God. Yeah. By hearing the word of God. Now, is God free to work above that means? Mm-hmm. Is, is, God, is God free to, to, I heard an example one time of somebody who's a drunk coming out of a bar and a gospel track blew up against his pant leg. And he picked it up, and when he sobered up in the morning, he read it. And the Lord was pleased to save him. Praise God for that. Is that ordinary? It's not ordinary. So the the doctrine of providence anticipates the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of sanctification. Because how are we we sanctified? By the same means. By the same grace, according to the same means. So, interpretive principles. Number one, that... The first interpretive principle is that the document requires interpretation. The second interpretive principle is that we need to read it sideways. We need to be willing to read back and forth and to discern how doctrines that are introduced to us early on become are foundational and, and are built upon later on and explained later on in the confession. A third interpretive principle is how do we understand the footnotes? How do we understand the footnotes? Um, some of the copies of the confe- confession don't, you know, some of the modern reprintings, for example, don't have them. Unfortunately, the one in our Trinity hymnal doesn't have the footnotes. When, when the confession was originally published, it did have scriptural footnotes. How do we understand that? Because there will be times when you, as you're studying through the confession, you will look up a scriptural footnote and you'll go, whoa, I see it. It's plain. It's obvious what they mean. There'll be other times you'll, you will read the scriptural footnote and you'll scratch your head going, I don't see that in that text. You had that experience as you kind of looked through? They did not, the, the editors of our confession did not consider or did not approach the footnotes in the same way that, that we might in our, our modern context of proof texting. We have, on, on average, a very different hermeneutic, a very different approach to the scriptures. We tend to think in terms of, hey, give me chapter and verse, and that settles the matter. Boom, here's my proof text. I gotcha. And we kind of have that gotcha mentality. They approached the scriptures more holistically and, and sought to model the way that Jesus and the apostles would reference the scriptures. Sometimes they would quote the scriptures directly, verbatim. And you could go from you know, a, a, a quote from Paul, for example, and you could go to the Old Testament and you could see word for word he's quoted it. Other times it's a paraphrase. Sometimes he's taking two or three different psalms and sort of blending them together. And it's a paraphrase. Other times it's an illusion. It's not a direct quote. It's not even a direct citation, but it's referencing a certain concept or principle or text. And, and generally speaking, when Jesus, for example, quotes from the Old Testament, He doesn't intend for you only to go and look at the one verse that he quoted. What's he intending you to do? Look at the whole section. What's the theological point contained in the Old Testament of which that one passage is just a pointer? it's 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 a directing arrow. And so the writers, the editors of our confession sought to model the same kind of thing. So when you, number one, if you see a footnote, so for example, what we just looked at with Providence, the reference is Hosea chapter 1 and verse 7. But you really have to have a familiarity with all of Hosea, don't you? 
and, and, the, and the, the whole narrative thrust of what's going on in Hosea. What was the historical context? What's being written about? Why is God writing these things to his people? And if you ask those kinds of questions, the footnote will make more sense. When you go to Romans chapter 4, you know, Paul's making a theological argument, isn't it, in, in chapter 4. He's talking about the fact that justification comes by faith alone, through Christ alone, and that Abraham was justified by faith in the seed that would come. And so then he uses the example of Abraham was, was 100 years old, Sarah was 90 years old, and was childless, and yet God had promised them. And he's making a theological argument. And so we think about how they, they, they reference that. They're not giving a, a, an anatomy lesson or a biolo- biology lesson. They're showing us how God operates, how God works, and how he has the power to transcend what we would ordinarily see as biological limitations. And so that he is free to work above his ordinary means. Some of them are more plain. You turn to Daniel chapter 3 and verse 27. He worked against his means. Well, here's three men in a fiery furnace. They didn't get burned up. That one's a little more obvious. So some are going to be immediately plain. Others are going to require a little bit of, of theological work. The other thing that we need to understand when we come to, the, to these these uh, footnotes, often they are referencing not only the scripture passage, but some of the primary source material in terms of commentaries during their day on that particular passage. So they might be referencing something that, for example, uh, John Owen wrote on a, a particular passage and even borrowing some of the language that he may have employed uh, for to make that particular theological point. So, if you do, if you, if in your study of the confession, if you look up a footnote and you have this response, I don't get it. If it's not immediately obvious to you, what that, what does that text have to do with the point that they're making in the confession? Then ask a couple of questions of yourself. Number one. What is this, the, the, the text that they, they cite, whether it's a text out of Romans or Ezekiel or Genesis, what's the main thing that's going on in that whole chapter, that whole section of Scripture? Because they're probably referencing more than just that one bare verse. They're, represent, they're, they're referencing a theological doctrine and concept there. Uh, secondly, it might be helpful to read at that point some of the older commentaries. Go pull some of the ones that are readily accessible online. You know, guys like John Calvin or Matthew Henry uh, that would be ready resources. That may not be exactly what they're quoting, but it may get you more in the ballpark of how this text would have been more widely understood in that day. Some of the texts that we, we assume, oh yeah, this is a, a text I'm very familiar with. I know what it means. And we may know in part, but we may not realize that our fathers in the faith um, also, from that same text, made other theological arguments uh, that may be referenced there in that footnote. And the fourth interpretive principle uh, will actually get us to next week is we need to understand something of the structure of the confession. And I mentioned it's 32 chapters, but these are not 32 disjointed, disconnected chapters. Uh, this isn't... Um, sort of random bullet points or random notions that they wrote down, there was, there's a, a structure to it that, that they believed reflected in some ways the structure of the scriptures themselves, meaning it's a covenantal structure. And so that there were first things, first principles that were set down first, and then other things were built upon that. So we read in the Pentateuch, for example, uh, starting in Genesis, we start with this revolutionary idea that God made everything. God did it. By fiat, ex nihilo, he just spoke and everything came into existence. And that God uh, made his creation with order, that, that there's a measure of predictability in the way that the planets orbit, the way that seeds germinate, uh, the way that, that, that the atmosphere is constructed. Everything in the creation is, is orderly. And so we start with that first principle, and then you move over to God calling Abraham, and God calling Abraham into a particular covenant relationship with himself. And we watch that progression through the book of Genesis to Isaac and then to Jacob, and that 
Jacob going with his family into Egypt and coming out 400 years later, a mighty nation. No longer a family, but a nation. And then, of course, Moses coming and leading them by God's mighty hand and outstretched arm and giving them the law at Sinai. And seeing now they become a a kingdom of priests, a, a, a people for God's own possession. And we see that covenantal structure. We see something similar in the way that our confession is structured. Next week, we'll flesh that out a little bit. And, and I'll, I'll share with you the outline. If you already have the book, then I'm, I'm, you will be spoiled in some ways, but hopefully I can, can give some additional insight to that. But how, it was extremely helpful to me a few years ago to see how do the parts fit together. Uh, chapters 1 through 6 are those what Dr. Renhan calls first things. These are the foundational principles on which the rest of our, our faith and life and doctrine is built. So we'll want to see how those parts fit together. So principles of interpretation, number one, just remember that it does require interpretation. Don't get frustrated if you're reading the Confession of Faith and you come away saying, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. That's okay. I mean, it's going to require some, at times some work. Some things will be very plain and obvious. Other things will require some interpretation. Secondly, read sideways. Part of that interpretive process is realizing how... The, how things are in the early stages of the confession are built upon, defined, and, and put into practice, the implications fleshed out later on. Thirdly, when you think about the footnotes, use those as a starting place. It can be very helpful as, as an arrow pointing you in the right direction, but it may not immediately answer your question. You may turn to the passage and think, that doesn't say anything about the doctrine that they've just asserted here. But don't stop there. Read, first of all, around that whole reference. You may even have to read, I mean, this gets dangerous. You may have to read a whole book of the Bible, something crazy like that, to really understand what's going on. You may have to crack open a commentary. And, and the older, the better. Uh, pre-enlightenment commentaries are usually much, much better than the modern ones. And so read through some of those things. What were some of the theological ideas, some of the theological controversies that would have been uh, evident and, and maybe behind that footnote. And then uh, be, be helped and encouraged by how the document is put together, how it's organized. Uh, and they were, according to the, to the introduction, they were self-consciously following even the same order that the Westminster Confession followed. There were some very slight deviations in terms of paragraphs omitted or, or inserted, but the overall order was the same, intentionally. Because in their own words, they, they did not want to, they had no itch to clog religion with new words. So they weren't trying to reinvent the wheel, which I think it, even that in itself is instructive to us. Uh, we, we don't need to be innovators. We don't need to try to reinvent things. Uh, we need to receive, learn, and pass on that which we have has been given to us. Any, any questions about the interpretive principles? Now, in, 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 in my copy of, of the confession, uh, the provided for, that, that phrase has the footnote of 1 Peter 5. Okay. I was wondering if that's what happened. Um, we have 1 Peter 5, the Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, I, I, I knew where it said Yeah, and that's a great point, too. That, you know, because you're dealing with a, we're not dealing with a translation. So if, if this may sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, you know, you know that I, I, I will sometimes in a sermon quote from the, the King James Version, for example, the, the authorized 1611 version, but I am not 
a King James onlyist, or I don't believe that that's the only um, permissible translation for the English-speaking people. And I think there are actually some legitimate issues, some problems with the 1689, uh, no, 1611 King James um, translation because words change over time. And so we, we I think a more a translation that's faithful to the original manuscripts and yet uses contemporary language, clearer language, I think it's helpful to us. Well, why don't I promote, with the 689, why don't I promote a new modern English version? Well, because we're not dealing with the translation. We're dealing with it with a document that was written in our language. Now, some of those words have, because language evolves over time, some of the, of the words have evolved somewhat. But the original text is still accessible to us. Again, it takes a little work, but it's accessible to us. The King James is a translation of the original work. Um, so we always go back to that original language wherever we are, we are able to. But with that said, not every publication of the confession is equally accurate in terms of just the footnotes. Um, I... I, I put a great deal of trust in, in Dr. Rinehan just because of the degree of, of his scholarship, and he has facsimile copies of the original confession and has done as best he can to go back and put the footnotes exactly where they had them. And that's taken some work, partly because sometimes they would use a, they weren't consistent in a, in a comma versus a semicolon and some other punctuation. And so there's been a little bit of even interpretation in terms of where did the footnote go. Um, this, this is the one that's published by Solid Ground, that they, and they worked with Jim in the publication of it. I think it's, it's, it's been the most helpful for me, but I, I, don't get too hung up on that. If, if you find a footnote, like you said, it's out of place a little bit, don't sweat that too much. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> That's right. Something's off. And yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, I guess that's interpretive principle number five. If you get confused with one version you find, consult another one, right? Yeah, yeah. one publication. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Matthew? Yeah, I think there is there is room for that. There is, and I think there's a way for you know a local church to do that. I'll give you one example. We we have a I think a very helpful and and to some degree thorough chapter on marriage, but it doesn't answer doesn't address the the madness that has come upon our culture with respect to human sexuality. But but in our church documents, in our constitution and bylaws, we do address that. And, and we, we, don't add really, we don't really necessarily add anything to our confession other than to clarify. When it says one man and one woman, well, this is what it means. One naturally born male, one naturally born female. And this means all other forms of sexual expression, such as, and we list a bunch of them, are out of bounds and unlawful. And no, no law of man can make those lawful. So in our confession, for example, it says... It uses the phrase degrees of consanguinity. Anybody know what that is? It's, it's close natural relations. You, you can't marry your first cousin or your brother or sister. The, the, so that was, you know, that was an actual issue in, in the 17th century. 
So they dealt with that, and they used the, 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 something along the lines of, neither can the consent of parties or the laws of man make such a practice lawful. Well, we can apply the very same thing with respect to, say, homosexual, so-called homosexual marriage. So the, so the principles are already there. Uh, it may be helpful in some ways to, to have secondary documents that clarify that, but uh, the, the, the substance is already there in our confession. Does that, does that help? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what we, the main thing we want to avoid is, 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 the, is the very enlightenment principle, the postmodern principle that the interpretive key is the reader, not the writer. And, and the writer still reserves the right of interpretation, not the reader. But we want to, even with the scripture sometimes, you will hear the question, what does this mean to you? Who cares? That's irrelevant. Yeah, what does it mean? What, did, what does it mean to God? That's the question we want to ask. What did the Holy Spirit intend to communicate here? And maybe... You know, Emerson and I were talking about this. Maybe the Old Testament human author was not even fully aware of the full meaning of the text. Not because he was in error, but because he wasn't fully aware of, of the full weight of what, he was, what God was breathing out through him. And so we, we want to ask, what does God intend by this? Not what does it mean to me? So we're, we're running behind. Let's, let me close in prayer, and we'll take a short break. Father... Thank you for your word. I pray that you would give to us as your people a great diligence and wisdom as we seek to know the things that you have made known to us. Uh, Father, I pray that, that as we study our confession of faith, that our, our devotion to and reliance upon your word would, would not diminish one iota, but instead increase. That our confidence in the authority and the sufficiency and the majesty of your word would, would only be enhanced uh, as we study these these concise uh, statements regarding what your word has taught. Uh, We thank you for your spirit's ongoing work among us, and and we pray that you will lead us uh, by his help through your word uh, into all truth. We ask this in his name. Amen.